Hello and welcome to the Basis Podcast, Agronomy Matters. I'm Jay Prince, Business Development Manager at Basis. This month we're talking all about potato cyst nematode, often referred to as PCM, and it's an important pest in most areas of the country where potatoes are grown. Severe attacks from PCM can lead to complete loss of yield, so it's really important that we have a level of control. It's during the autumn and winter months that we look to soil sample fields and prepare machinery. So today we're going to meet with three experts to learn more about soil sampling, controls, machinery calibration and the nematicide stewardship programme. Our first speaker is independent agronomist Simon Alexander. Simon will take us through the six best practice steps to the nematicide stewardship programme from necessary qualifications through to post-application checks. Our next speaker, Ian Foreman, joins us from NSTS, the National Sprayer Testing Scheme. Ian's going to expand on the importance of machinery calibration and the best ways to avoid problems during the season. Finally, we'll be joined by David Nelson, Agronomy Director at Branston Limited. Branston are a potato grower with sites in Lincoln, Scotland and the Southwest. And David's going to join us to discuss cultural controls to potato cyst nematode with a particular focus on variety choice. So the basis certificate in crop protection, agriculture and vegetable both cover potatoes to a certain level. And if you're interested in advancing your potato knowledge further, then we do offer the Advanced Potatoes course, which will also contribute towards the basis diploma in agronomy. So let's go and meet our first guest. So our first speaker to join us today is Simon Alexander. Hi, Simon. Morning. Thanks for joining us today. So the first question for yourself is, could you tell us what the Nematicide Stewardship Programme is and why it's in place? The Nematicide Stewardship Programme um, aims to ensure responsible use of granular nematicides through to protect the operator, the environment and the consumer. Um, the initiative has been going for several years now and has been developed by industry to include partners from stakeholder organisations, agrochemical companies, manufacturers, uh, distributors and research providers. So the group consists of, mem- of representatives for NFU, Red Tractor, manufacturers, um, uh, fresh produce, distribution, and the Potato Processors Association. Fantastic, thank you. And how can growers and agronomists justify the use of granular nematicides? At the end of the day, to justify use of granular nematicides, we need to know that we have a problem there in the first place. So that does involve sampling for potato cyst nematode before the crop, and based on work done with nematicide stewardship, um, over the last several years, uh, the advice has been to go for maximum one hectare blocks, uh, sampling with 50 cores out of that one hectare and analysing 200 grams of soil. Now that, going back several years, used to be a four hectare block and 100 grams of soil, but anything we can do to make it more accurate and the results more reliable is all better. Brilliant. And how, how reliable are results generally? Um, that, uh, that does also rely on a interpretation of what results you have got there and a degree of knowledge and history of the field as well. So yeah, you'll always get results that you think this doesn't look right, but, uh, hopefully with a bit of understanding of the field, talking to landlords, if it's rented or your own land, etc., you can form a conclusion, resample if you're not happy or unsure. Perfect. So I know that there are six best practice steps and uh, for the nematicide stewardship program. And I thought you might be able to help us with a bit more information on those different points today. So what are the qualification requirements for an operator applying nematicide? 
an operator who is applying a granular matricide uh, must have PA1 and PA4 or PA4G certificate and must also be a Neuroso member. They must have also have completed the artist's online nematicide stewardship course. Uh, I would just like to emphasize that uh, when we first started the artist courses, they were face-to-face. -face, and what we are asking um, all operators to do is to do the online course. Um, although there wasn't an expiry date on the face-to-face, -face, it is a bit more update. Um, uh, so we're asking everyone to complete the online. No expiry date, but obviously if there is any requirement uh, for an update, uh, that information will be disseminated through for gr uh, growers and operators to be aware that they need to redo it. And the online um, course from artists that you uh, are talking about is free, isn't it? It is, it is free of charge and yeah. can be accessed through the Nematicide Stewardship website or just by searching uh, artists Nematicide Stewardship. Brilliant. Yeah, I did it recently, actually. It's very interesting and, and worth spending a bit of time doing. It doesn't take too long at all. Um, so, yeah, I'd encourage no. people to go and do that. We can put the it's link not, in the information underneath the podcast. Yeah, it's not it's not onerous. It's um, all fairly straightforward, but it's a uh, good reminder of people of best practice and what they should be looking to do. Brilliant. So the second point um, on the six best practice steps is actually about calibration. We will have another speaker joining us um, to go into that. So we'll leave that one for now. Um, but could you tell us if there's any rules around how nematicides should be incorporated? Um, yeah, incorporation should be um, undertaken with a single pass. So basically, when nematicides apply to the soil, they should be incorporated straight away. The use of tines, so cultivators, etc., to incorporate is not advised. If that is the only option, then growers should be looking at going twice in opposite directions. Vertical incorporation is the preferred route using rotavator or rotor spike type. Um, and that does not include a power harrow because a power harrow is also horizontal incorporation. And that's down to sort of 15 centimetres. Brilliant. Then I've got down that the fourth step is um, single pass. What does single pass mean? Uh, sing single pass is basically that's the bit we've just done. Fourth step is shut off. Perfect. <laughs> shut off then. What does shut off? What does uh, shut off? Basically, for potatoes, um, all applicators must be fitted with a vising cab that allows the operator to shut granular masticides off for at least three metres before the end of the row. Now, if they've got a piece of equipment where they've got the hopper on the front, the planter on the back, that may need to be longer than three metres, but they must ensure that by the time they get to the end of the row, there are no masticides left to come out of the uh, application system. So that includes if they've got land wheels systems, electronic clutches, or if it's part of the um, GPS system, then that, that would be automatic anyway. Brilliant. And um, how should we deal with spillages? Um, spillages, if you have a minor spillage, um, that can basically be um, dug in and incorporated um, straight into the ground. If you have a major spillage um those granules should be collected and ideally transferred back into an empty original container so breaking the top of the seals putting them in there and then dealing with them as appropriate obviously storing them safely and uh probably using authorized uh, disposal um, operators to get rid of them the one thing obviously should state is that any spillages that are being handled the operator should be using the appropriate pre-pe to uh, to do so fantastic and that brings us on to our 
final best practice step, even though I've tried to add in a seventh for you. <laughs> uh, our, sixth, our sixth point is um, what post-application monitoring is necessary? Right. Um, although, um, uh, as far as I'm aware, there has never been an instance of a uh, wildlife contamination with nematicides, um, the, it is strongly advised that a field should be inspected the day after the field has been planted or drilled and day after I'm talking 12 to 24 hours uh, by somebody uh, responsible uh, and it's aiming mainly initially at the sort of the higher risk areas so areas such as the fill-up sites where you may not have noticed a bit of a little bit of spillage um, etc um, hopefully any of those will obviously have been cleared up but fill-up sites the main field headlands, um, so that includes not just the long rows, but also the short rows uh, where you're heading towards corners, etc. And even if you've got the headland joining up to the main rows, should still be looking at the ends of the rows um, for any possible issues. False headlands, so areas such as round electric pylons, telegraph poles, um, uh, irrigation splits, pits or any other obstacle um, that is not strictly a main headland. Uh, all of those are areas where there is a risk of um, spillage and granules laying on the surface, but good practice up to that point should ensure that, that doesn't happen. Um, obviously, all actions taken during recording field inspections or during field inspections should be recorded. Um, if there was ever a situation where something was found, um, that should then re be reported to the Health and Safety's Wildlife Incident Investigation Scheme. And that is a uh, free free call number, and uh, the manufacturers should also be notified. Um, if having looked around the headlands and something has been found, then further investigation of the rest of the field should be undertaken to ensure there is not a problem. Again, with proper incorporation, there should not be granules laying on the surface uh, to cause a problem. If you have a situation unlike this spring where it was sort of fairly easy where you've got stop start planting um, for more than 24 hours either due to weather soil conditions change of varieties or things like that the area that has been planted should be checked within that 12 24 hour period and then go back and check the balance of the field um, after that once that's been planted again within that 12 to 24 hour period brilliant thank you very much and this um when people are going on doing their walk around, they're recording it. Is there a certain length of time that they should keep records for? Um, at the end of the day, this is all auditable under Red Tractor, and therefore there is will be a requirement to keep those records for three years. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, uh, Simon. You've given us a really good insight of the sort of best practice tips that people should be taking as we move into the potato preparing season. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Our next speaker today is Ian Foreman from the National Sprayer Testing Scheme. Hi, Ian. Hi, Jade. Ian's here to tell us a bit more about machinery calibration. Um, so I wondered if you could start by telling us why it's important to calibrate the nematicide applicators. Well, granular nematicides are dangerous to livestock and to wildlife. So particular care must be taken when and, and also care needs to be taken when working near watercourses. They are very toxic, so um, correct PPE was, must be worn at all times. Uh, since 2019, the Red Tractor Fresh Produce Scheme Protocol 
included the recommendations that the nematicide stewardship program had introduced a few years earlier. This included having operators having the correct qualifications and also completing RTC learning modules. Daily machine inspections are required to be carried out and also that the machine itself is able to shut off the flow of product before turning on the headlands. There must be designated filling areas and also appropriate spillage procedures and also that field inspections are carried out within 24 hours um, to ensure there are no ad adverse effects to wildlife. Fantastic. And how often should people be calibrating machinery and who should be doing it? Is there any particular person um, or qualifications that somebody might need? Well, I think that anybody who holds the PA4 or the PASC qualification that operators need to use this type of equipment would be um, perfectly competent to do that. And the same for any PA qualifications that operators may hold. It is a requirement that they should be carrying out regular types of uh, regular calibrations for all types of equipment. But in the Red Tractor Protocol, it does state that calibrations need to be carried out at the start of the season as a as a bare minimum and all but also if there was a change of product and could you talk us through how somebody would calibrate uh, an amatocide applicator uh, so there's a, a, a bit of a range of different types of equipment out there um, and on some machines it can be just a simple dump test where which drops the, the whole flow of the product into a container um, and this can then be weighed and compared against the expected output and the machine adjusted accordingly. But other types may require the collection of product from each of the individual outlets. Um, and depending on how sophisticated that machine is, um, if it's got a controller on it, the figure can be compared against that and adjusted. But on the more basic machines, then the adjustment will be carried out manually. But on some of the, um, there are still a few very old machines out there which have a fixed speed. And on this machine, um, the output is calculated against the shaft speed to then adjust output depending on forward speed. Perfect, thank you. You mentioned earlier um, that obviously people that are calibrating machinery should be wearing PPE. What sort of level of PPE is it that's required? So for um, nematicide applications, really we've only got one product left on the market now and stated on their label um, is coveralls. Um, they also need suitable protective gloves. Eye protection is required. And also very importantly, a filtering um, respirator to at least a, an FFP3 standard for this product. Brilliant, so hopefully things that most people will have already, um, but yeah, a reminder for what people need should they not have that. Um, and what evidence yeah, of calibration the, is needed and to what sort of level of detail? There doesn't appear to be any standard or minimum format of what record and how the records of a calibration should be kept. Uh, Red Tractor, all they state in the protocol is that records should be kept, uh, should be kept, and these, of course, will be checked when the when the farmer has an audit.
and most other things that red tractor asks for are generally sort of every uh, are kept up to three years aren't they i believe so um yeah i yes, think that's I, great yeah um so do you have a checklist of things that we could sort of work through potentially to avoid problems in the season yeah we, we do nsts produced a, a microgranular checklist some years ago and this is downloadable from the nsts website and along with including a list of daily checks that the operator can carry out um, there is an area that they can keep a record of any calibrations that they do of either um, recording using a dump test or um, recording a dynamic calibration which is the one that's detailed in the nemethorin rate chart that's brilliant. Thanks, Ian. So what I'll do is in the blurb underneath the podcast, I'll put a link to that uh, NSTS checklist that people can go and download. And yeah, you've given everybody a really good insight there as to how to calibrate their machinery, the importance of it and, and what they should go and, and go and do now before the season is upon us again. So our next speaker today is Dr. David Nelson, the Agronomy Director at Branston Limited. Hi, David. Hey. Thanks for joining us today. Could you start by telling us how you would go about collecting a PCN sample uh, and interpreting the results? Um, well, I would probably not myself collect the sample in that there are a lot of experienced contractors out there now who, who are capable in terms of the machinery, et cetera, and sampling equipment to be able to take those samples. Um, but then in terms of the direction, um, if I have a background, if I have knowledge of uh, PCN in that on that farm or in, in that field, then I would always obviously test in advance of potato growing. Uh, normally, you'd be sampling uh, 30 to 40 points in each hectare of the field, and, and the contractor would provide a map then of the distribution of that PCN. Um, if it was a field where I wasn't, I had no background experience of PCN, I probably wouldn't necessarily test in advance of cropping but I would put a lot more emphasis on testing after potato cropping. Um, one, I think one of the key things that's being missed at the moment is, is growers are not actually testing after potato crop when if there is any PCN in the field those levels are amplified um, often you know 15 to 100 times by the actual potato crop so if you're going to find out whether a block of land is going to be uh, free of PCN for the future, then testing after potato crop is a far more effective way of uh, managing um, your sort of PCN um, program. Uh, I also prefer the kind of Dutch approach to PCN sampling, which is to sample in one hectare strips in the direction of planting within the field um, so that if you find PCN within any strip you can then take um, additional action in terms of for example growing um, a resistant variety in that field when you come to grow potatoes next um, or perhaps not crop it um, because the objective has really got to be to kind of keep keep PCN levels down, in my mind, to under sort of five eggs per gram at any point in the field um, after the potato crop. Measuring in advance of the potato crop, I just don't think is 
it's too, it's too late in, in a lot of cases. Is there a sort of natural reduction that you would expect if you were to sample directly after potatoes before you were to plant your next um, crop of potatoes? Yeah. There'd be a sort of a natural yeah. reduction in that time? That's correct, yeah. yeah. You would expect um, the egg count to decline at around about 15% per annum um, um, after the potato crop, which is kind of often the issue in terms of if, for example, you grow a potato crop with a very low level of PCN in the field, non-detectable by testing, you know, say 0.1 egg per gram or something. Um, if you don't test that crop, if you test that crop after the after the potato harvest, then you may well find a kind of a hot spot of three, four, five eggs per gram in one or two places. Um, if you wait another seven years, that will have declined to, to under one egg per gram. And you probably won't even know it's there again um, by conventional testing in advance of potato growing. Um, so you then multiplies up. Um, when you grow your potato crop, um, assuming it's not a resistant variety, um, to, to perhaps 10, 15, 20 eggs per gram. And, and again, if you don't test for it, you probably aren't even going to know it's there, particularly if it's a reasonably tolerant variety, it's not showing symptoms. Uh, and again, there's a reasonable chance you're not going to find it even six, seven years after that. Um, if, if numbers decline to, to one or two eggs per gram, you may not find it. So that, that's really the, the importance of, under, of the testing after potato crop in terms of understanding your, your, the real scale of your problem and giving you time to do something about it. Brilliant. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. So Simon Alexander's been on, he's been talking to us about um, the Matterside Stewardship Programme. Um, and all the sort of precautions we should take to make sure we're using it, using nematicides responsibly. But what other methods um, can we go to other than nematicide use to try and control potato cyst nematodes? Well, there are there are obviously lots of techniques. You obviously got the length of the rotation, um, as we've already talked about decline rates, um, where we have have a problem. Um, there's the whole area of hygiene. Um, not transporting PCN from uh, an affected field into into a clean field through machinery, and of course it's not just the it's not just the potato machinery; it's the plows and every every other bit of machinery in every other year. Um, so again, understanding where you have the problem uh, is, is really critical. Um, it, again, control, controlling volunteer potatoes is obviously useful. Um, they can continue to multiply up uh, the disease in the, doing the rotation. Uh, and, and, and there are also trap crops and, and biofumigant crops that can be used um, in particular kind of hotspot situations. But very much now, I think going forward, I think PCN resistance is probably uh, now becoming much more widely available, um, certainly within the processing potato growing area. And, 
And I think really the most, the far, the, by far the most effective uh, means of actually reducing PCN populations and dealing with the problem is through the use of resistant varieties. Um, <clears throat> and obviously when you start looking at uh, varieties, you've got uh, both the level of resistance, the, particularly pallida, which I think is the, the main challenge that we have these days and the level of tolerance. So the level of tolerance is how well the variety can cope with um, the stress of PCN feeding damage in the roots, particularly early in the spring. So it tends to be um, indeterminate varieties which produce large root systems, large whole, um, can cope better with PCN feeding damage. Um, um, they tend to be obviously later maturing type varieties. Uh, but then resistance comes down to the, is really down to the ability of the, uh, in this case, pallida um, nematode to multiply up on the root system of the plant. So, so the tolerance is as kind of a short-term benefit, but on its own is of, of no, no long-term, gives you no long-term gain um, in that, they actually, without resistance, they actually multiply up PCM far more than indeterminate varieties, sorry, indeterminate varieties, which are, um, produce smaller root systems. Uh, resistance is the key element, and we're now getting varieties with resistance levels of eight, nine, um, which effectively means that, for example, if you, if you plant them into a field with, say, an egg count of 10, you're likely to actually, our uh, post-harvest, end up with an egg count of perhaps down at one or two or even, even less eggs per gram, which you can imagine after another five, six, seven years um, is, is well under one when you come to next grow your potato crop. Um, so it really enables you to get on top of um, what can be quite challenging problems, although there may be a short-term yield loss in the growing of that crop in that part of the field, which is why you have to kind of prevent the PCM populations getting out of control in the first place um, by uh, proper sort of sampling and uh, programs to detect the, to detect the issue at an early stage. And we, we have got our experience with trap crops. Um, we've we've um, used Solanus simbrifolium um, for example, in the past. And the problem is that it kind of needs to be growing during the summer months. So you lose, uh, lose an alternative crop, a cash crop in effect. Um, and establishment has always been quite challenging. And we also had some sort of disease concerns around some of the seed stalks. Um, and I think the use of biofumigants in the autumn, certain types of mustard, is has got some benefit, um, but it's uh, sort of touching around the sides, really, um, particularly compared with proper use of resistant varieties. Brilliant. That's really good. Thank you. So uh, the difference between tolerance and resistance was something that gave me massive brain ache when I was doing my <laughs> stimulating drops yeah. and trying to get my head around that. You're giving us a really good description there. Uh, but just in case anyone struggles with it as much as I did. So tolerance um, means that you're still getting a good crop 
of potatoes, but you're doing nothing to control potato cyst nematode. And resistance yeah. means that you are actually actively helping the reduction of potato cyst nematode. Are you still getting a good crop? Uh, if the variety has got tolerance as well, then you're getting the best of both worlds. Uh, so, so for example, um, uh, there's, for example, uh, that we, we, we're just trialing a variety in the fresh sector called Buster, which is a new variety, which is indeterminate. So it produces a lot of root, a lot of top, very strong plants. Plus it has sort of resistance levels. It would appear sort of to be around the eight, nine. Um, so it actually captures both uh, aspects. Um, now maybe that the very low level of PCN that kind of the pallida that evades the variety buster could over time multiply up again. If you continue to grow the same variety, then we don't know whether or not there might be an issue that it might subselect within the pallida population and increase over time. But I think that's, that's not our most major concern at the moment. Whereas you've got other varieties like Innovator, which is widely grown in the, uh, particularly in the chipping sector, um, which has got very good resistance, but poor um, tolerance. So if there's even a sort of sniff of pallida in the field, then you'll get um, reduced size of the canopy, you know, basically stunts the plant and you get a lower yield. So at the least you would have to use probably full rate nematicides and in order to try and protect the plant in the early stages to kind of improve its tolerance. Um, so they're, they're, that's the key difference. We used to have varieties that, for example, Cara was very indeterminate, had got no pallid resistance, but was indeterminate. And when we didn't have resistant varieties to pallid, quite often growers were, were planting the variety Cara, which coped with the paladin in the in the ground, you know, up to certain egg counts reasonably well. You, you hardly knew that there was any um, PCN in the, in the ground, but eventually the levels of multiplication became so great that the you know we were we were seeing egg counts, you know, in the sort of hundreds per gram, and even eventually you couldn't even grow cara. Even the cara was stunted. So it, it only works up to a certain level of disease pressure and any degree of tolerance. Wow, okay. And the only reason you sort of wouldn't use a resistant or tolerant variety is it sort of it costs more for the seed potato or is it end market? Well, resistant varieties have not been very available. Um, there, there's always been resistant, well, since Maris Piper, um, there's always been um, the golden nematode, the rustachensis um, resistance, but of course we've selected out effectively by growing that that uh, those those varieties. We've selected out the pallida and the white white PCN, um, and that is a more sort of diverse um, species of PCN, and it's taken a lot longer to de to develop resistant varieties. So what we're finding at the moment, I think in the in the processing sector, we're seeing quite an influx of pallid resistant varieties now coming through. Um, but on fresh, it's still very, very limited. And 
you know, we've got variety like, um, like I said, Buster, there's been varieties like Panther and, and Eurostar that have got pretty good levels of uh, pallid resistance. Um, again, up to the eight, nine level. So it's not a black and white thing like, like with Rosta Chensis, um, where they're either resistant or they're not. With Pallida, they were kind of a degrees of resistance. Um, so really we've been waiting for these very resistant varieties to really be able to start to hammer down on the populations. But for a range of reasons that, you know, maybe they're not acceptable um, in terms of eating quality, maybe they just, in other ways, they yield performance and characteristics are not, not desirable. Um, but we are starting to sort of make quite significant progress now, I think, in, in that area. Brilliant, thank you. So you've given us a few sort of little case studies from your personal experience um, within your previous answers, but how much of a problem have you had with sort of potato cyst nematode? And can you tell us a little bit about the factors that might affect whether you know it's going to be sort of a good or a bad year for PCN? In terms of um, sort of evolution of uh, Pallida over time in the UK, I suppose what we've seen initially kind of a, a big rise in East Anglia um, and Eastern England, uh, the traditional potato growing areas in the silts, fens, etc. Uh, and that took place sort of 15, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so basically pallid is starting to come in and, <clears throat> and multiply up. So it's got to the point now where it is pretty widespread and growers have kind of reacted to that by extending rotations and where possible by going onto clean land. So if, you know, they're basically going over the hedges away from their land, and perhaps renting land in um, and to try to get around the problem through an extended rotation, which has worked to degree. Um, but I think now they're going to have to start looking much more at resistant varieties. Uh, other, other areas which are newer to potato grow it, growing, um, for example, um, the southwest and, uh, of England uh, and and in areas like Scotland, there's there's always been a background level of um, of a PCN, um, but we're now seeing, particularly in Scotland, we're now seeing kind of, kind of increased rates of um, PCN development. I think fairly close rotations and a limited potato growing um, area has meant that kind of low levels of particularly pallida lack of resistant varieties has meant that we're now starting to sort of see the problem in Scotland that we had in East Anglia sort of 20 years ago. Um, so it's really critical that, you know, growers in those areas where the disease is only just starting to be, become um, more widespread, really get on top of it uh, as quickly as possible, um, particularly through the post-harvest testing and developing a, a proper sort of plan in terms of how they're going to manage PCM going forward, rather than just reacting to kind of tests um, in advance of planting a field. Um, so yeah, it is constantly evolving. Um, uh, on the plus side, we've got more resistant varieties. On the, I suppose on the downside, we've got 
less chemical solutions in terms of nematicides. Um, but nematicides only kind of delay delay the inevitable um, if you don't take account of other factors such as rotation. You know, it's, it very soon gets to the point after two or three potato crops where it becomes unsustainable to grow potatoes. So um, it is a, is a big challenge for the UK. And, and I think compared to, for example, Holland, we haven't really sort of grabbed it and sort of um, dealt with it as perhaps as best as what we could have done. Um, and I think this comes down to largely a lack of understanding from, from landowners, perhaps landowners who are letting land, who don't understand the consequences of PCN um and and growers who perhaps uh um and also not being totally responsible uh in terms of uh, growing crops in scotland for example you've still got farm saved seed so that's the, the ability you know farm saved seed can enable you to kind of take seed from infected seed into into the following year and affecting new land uh, if you're buying certified seed then that comes from land which is pc and tested so so that that should be very much free from any form of uh, uh, pcn infection brilliant thank you i think that sort of uh sort of answered all of your questions today the final question was a little bit more about sort of um, whether PCN tolerance is different for fresh or seed potatoes, um, but you kind of covered that often. If you had anything more that you wanted to add at all, no, no. I think I think we're PCN resistance is important, but for seed crops, in that um, again, or even though there's a much more intensive um, sampling for PCN um, when you're growing a certified seed crop. Um, that doesn't mean that there's still absolutely no PCN in that field. So if you're growing a non-resistant variety, if there was any presence at all, then that will be multiplied up. Um, if you if you can have more resistant varieties in your mix, then then you're reducing your chances of, of that taking place. So it would be great for the industry for, for us to have a lot more fully resistant varieties that we could be growing more extensively, both in seed areas and obviously then in the weir areas. And um, we would, you know, very soon get really on top of this, uh, this, this big problem if we could do that. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, David. Hopefully you've given um, people a lot of food for thought there and when they should be sampling for PCN and what they should be doing with those results and if you wanted to read any more about um Branston's trap crops and biofumigants I've seen that you've got a couple of articles in the Farmers Weekly which were interested in reading so I'd encourage people to go and have a look at that uh, but yeah thanks for joining us today David yeah thank you I hope that you have found today's episode interesting and that it has provided useful information for anyone growing or advising on potatoes as always, I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of our speakers today for sharing their knowledge. At Basis, we know that winter is a great time for many of our members to complete some continuous professional development and training. So please be aware that we currently have a winter offer on our Basis Classroom digital courses. 
You can get 10% off on our Principles of Sustainable Land Management course, which is worth eight CPD points. And for any facts qualified advisors, our Facts Nitrogen Use Efficiency Refresher module is worth two CPD points. I'll put the links in the podcast information, so please do have a look if you're interested. Explain your CPD point for listening to today's episode. Please go to the members area of the Basis website, click Submit CPD Points, and type Basis Podcast Agronomy Matters PCN into both the CPD reference number and publication title areas. That's Basis Podcast Agronomy Matters PCN into both the CPD reference number and publication title areas. Thank you so much for listening. Join us next time for Agronomy Matters.